Hey everybody, and welcome to our newest project for first responder wellness, No One Fights Alone, an in-depth conversation about mental health and addiction in the first responder space. We're joined by your hosts, Austin Pedersen and Josh Adams. Welcome back everybody to another week of uh, No One Fights Alone. Um, I, there's a great guest we have this week, a uh, good friend. He's sitting over here smiling and laughing because he's not used to anything technological over here. Uh, we have a good friend with us, John Corcoran. Uh, he is a St. Paul police officer for 18 years? 24. 24 years. Yep. Way off. Um, I was figuring we were talking about your retirement the other day, so I was thinking 25 years. You have seven uh, years uh, left. No. So I'm just at about the seven-year mark. Okay, yeah. And uh, I met John in 2020 uh, after the riots. Um, we've stayed in contact over the years. Uh, we are actually, we have the pleasure of being at the Wounded Blue Survival Summit together this week uh, in Terre Haute. Indiana, uh, and so I I begged and pleaded, and he agreed to be on the podcast with us. So super excited. Um, John is going to share his story this week, uh, just kind of talk about some of the the trials and tribulations that he's been through, what he's experienced uh, as a twenty four year officer. Um, so John. The time, the time is yours. I'll kind of split in and ask some questions here and there. But other than that, the, t- the table is yours. Thanks, Austin. Uh, first of all, thank you. It's an honor to be on here. Um, like Austin said, my name is John Corker, and I am a 24-year veteran of the St. Paul Police Department in St. Paul, Minnesota. My career um, started out kind of unconventionally. I uh, graduated from a Catholic private high school in 1993. Um, Took a year off to kind of figure out life. And um, in 1994, August 26th to be exact, um, St. Paul suffered a tragedy within our city, um, within our police department. We had two officers, Ron Ryan Jr. and Tim Jones, and Tim's canine partner and laser were murdered in the line of duty. Um, that was kind of the uh, the uh, awakening for me for getting into law enforcement. I saw how the city rallied around the police department, how it rallied and um, took care of its officers, and how they were kind of revered within the city. And um, I just knew then I, that that was something I wanted to do. Um, so that following fall, I enrolled in uh, Inver Hills Community College, which is a small um, community college outside of St. Paul. Got a two-year degree in a little over a year and a half. And in Minnesota, to be a licensed police officer, you have to go through a skills portion after you get your associate's degree. Um, I went through that, completed that, and at the time of doing that, I was already working for the St. Paul Police Department in the capacity of a parking enforcement officer. So, so you meter made tickets, <laughs> I, tickets. Yeah, I can't imagine tickets. you doing that today. Like just knowing you, that doesn't seem like a a John Corcoran uh, job. It was, it's actually a great program we have in the department. It's a stepping stone for. Um, younger people that are interested in law enforcement to get a foot in the door. And um, it's a great program with that with our community liaison officer program. It's a very good stepping stone to getting that, um, that familiarity with the department, with the city, and um, getting a job with the city. From there, I... Uh, I finished up skills, took the post test. Like I said, you have to have a post license in the state of Minnesota to be a police officer. And what that involves is just taking a state test. Um, So, you know, you pass it and you're on what they call a post-eligible list. That allows you to start interviewing with the departments. And um, I interviewed with 
probably half a dozen departments, St. Paul being one of them. Um, uh, and at, was, this, at this time, I think you told me this like a year ago, there were like 40 positions, right? Yep, for... my academy, we had 40 people in our academy, and I think the application process held over 1,500 candidates. Different era. Very different era. Um, we've just, uh, as many departments are experiencing um, retention problems right now, um, hiring problems, and it's uh, not a field that is um, sought after as it was back in 1998. Um, kind of to go back to that, I was offered a job with Mankato PD, which is Mankato is a small town. Um, small city outside of St. Paul, probably two hours south of St. Paul. Um, I had accepted the offer from them. And the um, chief at the time in St. Paul um, was uh, William Finney, one of my favorite chiefs. Um, was he, this the guy you were talking about yesterday? That yep. When yep, everyone very, walked in the room. Very, very great chief, um, very well-respected Um I had been trying to get in to see him to thank him for the opportunity to um, work for the department and tell him that I would be back someday and I would retest with St. Paul, but I was going to go down to Mankato and get some experience. And kind of a cool story, I ran into him my very last day. Um, I was working out of Eastern District, and he was out there for some ceremony, and uh, he pulled me aside and said, hey, I heard you wanted a meeting with me let's have that meeting right now and so I you know we went into one of the offices and he I explained to him that I took a job with Mankato PD and he congratulated me and he said you're gonna love it there um I got my start there um here's where to eat here's you know some of the things that Mankato offers and he goes uh to make this official I gotta call your background background investigator and have her pull your file. So he got on the phone, speaker phone, and he uh, got a hold of my background investigator, which was um, a lady who ended up being one of my sergeants later on in my career. And he said, Mary, I have John Corcoran here. He's accepted a job with Mankato PD. Um, can you pull his background packet? And she goes, yep, chief, I've got it right in front of me. And he's like, well, um, why don't you put a conditional job offer in there? I'm offering job at or John a job as police officer in St. Paul. And I was just like, wait, what just happened? And uh, he he knew I was stunned. He's like, John, uh, I just offered you a job. Do you want to work for me? And I was like, absolutely, you know. And so I uh, had to call Mankato and tell them I had taken a job with St. Paul. They weren't very happy. They had sunk some money into the process with me. But, you know, you got to go with your dream job if it's offered. And that was my dream job. Um, started the academy two weeks later. It was a 16-week academy. We had 40 people in my academy. I think we ended up graduating 39. And after we graduated, we went out to a four-phase FTO process. Um, got through that and um, got through my first probationary year. And you, you were a hothead. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and looking back on it, um, I was 21 years old when I got hired. It's a very young age. Um, it's a lot of responsibility for a 21-year-old to give them the power to take somebody's freedom to, um, you know, do some of the duties that police officers have to do. That's a lot of responsibility to give somebody. And um, I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood, went to private grade school, private high school. I didn't have a ton of life experience. I didn't, you know, I was pretty much sheltered my whole life, you know, and um, so I got out there, and I thought I was 10 feet tall, bulletproof, and... I mean, did you learn pretty quickly that that, I did. that wasn't the case? I, I mean, you had some mentors um, and things like that that helped you through so, that process, right? Um yeah, I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was a trouble officer. I was, you know, I was a little firm with people and sometimes didn't treat them the nicest when I was brand new. And 
one of my sergeants um, that was a mentor of mine, Jerry Vick, um, and Jerry's story will come out later in this podcast too a little bit, um, pulled me aside one night and he says, hey, you know, you're assigned to the desk for a while. And, you know, you didn't really, as a new officer, question your sergeant. And so I did it, and I was on the desk for a couple of weeks. And one night he comes up to the desk and he goes, hey, I want to talk to you. Do you know why I put you on the desk? And I said, no. And he goes, well, I'm tired of people telling me, you know, what you're doing wrong out there and what you're, you know, I want you to kill people with kindness from now on. Be nice to these people, and, you know, you're going to get more bees with honey. And I carried that throughout my career after that and um, had an exceptional career after that. Um, I've worked some very blessed assignments in the police department. I work patrol, which um, is probably my favorite assignment. I spent three and a half years in canine working with one of our canines. And um, that was probably one of the coolest jobs I've ever had and one of the most... um, I wouldn't say stressful, but, you know, unnerving jobs. You know, you're searching in the middle of the dark for somebody that just did a shooting or an armed robbery or something, and you're in these backyards, and you're relying on an animal that's got its own mind and makes its own decisions to, you know, tell you where to go and, you know, where this guy's hiding. And, you know, but it was it was a great job, and... I miss it. I miss working with the dog. I miss... Uh, and that's why you got two now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit. But um, no, I've had a blessed career. Um, it has come with its ups and downs. Um, so in during my career, there, you know, has been some critical incidents I've been involved in, some trauma that I've seen. Um, very early in my career, we had a... Um, call in St. Paul where a mother going through some postpartum depression. Um, I was actually working, they call it the Taste of Minnesota. And uh, we have a bridge. They decided to have it on an island that the Mississippi runs right through St. Paul. And there's an island called Harriet Island. And they had it on this island this year. They used to have it up by the state capitol. And um, I remember I was in canine at the time. I was first year in canine, and I was with another canine handler, good friend of mine, Jim Nash. We were eating dinner on the hoods of our squad cars, and um, some citizen ran up and goes, um, somebody just threw two babies into the river. And there were hundreds of people on the bridge. And I'm like, okay. This is probably a prank. Somebody threw a doll off the bridge, you know, get some attention or something like that. And I ran down to the shore and people kept coming up to me. Hey, there's babies in the water. There's babies in the water. And so um, I got down to the shore and I noticed a couple guys out swimming in the small bay off the river. And they swam up to me and they handed me this baby. And the baby wasn't breathing, wasn't... uh, it was lifeless, and we, uh, I was down on the shore, and I started doing CPR on it, you know, and got the baby back. And the other officers that were with me, they formed a human pyramid, and they, because uh, we were, you know, the riverbank, they had a retaining wall that was probably 25, 30 feet high, and they formed a human pyramid, and we passed the baby up to the medics, and uh, we later learned that it was a mother going through some postpartum depression. Uh, she had some schizophrenia issues. Um, she had gone to um, the Taste of Minnesota just to get one person to smile at her. She just needed that one person to smile at her, and she didn't find that, and she ended up throwing her twin boys over the bridge um, into the river. And then she jumped into the river. Um, they ended up pulling her out. And the one baby that I ended up reviving, um, she survived. And the one baby I ended up reviving survived. But um, the other baby ended up, we couldn't find the other baby. And uh, um, they 
couple days later, I was working. I was coming into work, and I heard um, our dispatch um, call for Ramsey County Water Patrol, which Ramsey County handles all the water incidents in our city. Um, and they had alerted um, Ramsey County that they had found the other baby down in the Red Wing area. Um, so I, I took that a little hard. I remember the night that that happened, I went home and um, had small children of my own. That It was kind of tough to deal with. Yeah. I remember yeah. uh, my wife and I, we when I left work that night, they still hadn't found any next of kin for that kid. Mom's going to jail. Um, so my wife and I went down to the hospital and sat with the baby for the night. And uh, they ended up finding some family and everything. And um, I just kind of got an update on that a couple months ago that um, somebody had told me that the mother um, ended up going to one of our psychiatric hospital um, kind of in lieu of jail and she had completed her time and um, she had written a book about um, her battles with mental illness and um, I've looked into it a little bit about maybe reading it and um, I was also uh, approached by a partner of mine a couple of years ago that she had run into the baby that survived was now a young man um, uh, probably like 12 or 13 years old and she had run into him at one of our um in the winter for christmas we do a cops and kids or where cops go shopping with kids for presents for their um parents for christmas and she recognized the kid's name and asked him you know about a little bit about it and and she was like yeah you know i ran into him he looks good and everything so you know, everything comes back around for us as police officers. You know, you a friend of mine did an interview with uh, one of the local TV channels, and he said, you know, if there's one thing I get out of this job, if I can touch one person's life and be remembered, you know, the whole everything that happens in my career is worth it. So, you know, I've had some other traumatic events happen, and, um, you know, I've seen a lot of shootings, a lot of... Uh, um, domestics, a lot of, uh, this, uh, we see pe people on their worst day. Um, that's the ugliness of our job, but we, in the same breath, it's kind of the beauty of our job too. We get to be that person that people look to, to, you know, when they don't have any hope to give them a little bit of hope, to give them that, you know, a sense of security and everything. Um, like I said earlier, um, some of the other things I've seen, and I talked a little bit about Sergeant Jerry Vick. Um, Jerry was a mentor of mine. He, uh, I was my midnight sergeant for years. And then he left midnights when I went into canine and he, um, went to the vice unit. He worked street level narcotics, prostitution, and, um, one night, him and his partner were out working a prostitution detail, and they were in a local bar, and they inter um, they don't know if they interrupted a robbery or um, there were two males that were hanging around the bar, and they kind of shoot them out of the area. They were in plain clothes. Um, Jerry and his partner split to walk to their cars, and Jerry's partner heard two gunshots, and Went to find Jerry was shot. Um, I was off that night. I had just gotten home from working at about 11.30, and I got a phone call. Um, we had just had my youngest daughter, Katie, and uh, the phone kept ringing. And, uh, uh, my wife got mad, and she's it was one of my partners, one of my best friends, Jeremy Ryan, calling me, and she's like, well, why is Jeremy calling this lady? He knows we have a brand-new baby, this and that. And I said, if he's calling repeatedly, something happened. And I picked up the phone, and Jerry's like, hey, 
you got to get your dog and get into work. We got to cop down. And I remember driving in and it was almost like I was dreaming. There wasn't any sirens. There weren't squad cars. And I lived in the city. There weren't squad cars flying. There was barely any radio traffic on the air. And I remember pulling up to the scene and there was crime scene tape up and ran into a classmate of mine. And, uh, I said, Hey, who shot? And, uh, he goes, it's Jerry. It's Jerry Vick. And I said, okay. And I said, and my classmates like, Hey, you got to stay here. The, um, they're out tracking for the suspect and, uh, I got to go get my SWAT stuff. So he left, went down to the garage where they store all their SWAT gear. And, um, I was standing there in one of the Eastern district, um, sergeants came up to me and he's like, Hey, Cork, do you have your dog? Are you ready to go? They're out tracking. They've been out tracking for an hour. They're going to need some relief. I want you and your dog ready to go. I'm like, yeah, we're ready. We're ready to go. And I'm like, Hey, well, what's the status on Jerry? And, uh, Sergeant turned to me and says, Hey, he's dead. He died. And, uh, I remember, uh, having to go out and search for the guy that killed him. And the whole time I'm thinking, you know, this guy just killed one of my brothers and, you know, um, a lot of emotion was going through myself, the, uh, cover officers I had with me, the, um, the whole department. I mean, uh, the whole department, something like that happens. The whole department comes, drops everything they're doing. Everybody comes in from home and we go to work. And, uh, kind of the result of that was the guy was hiding in a porch about half a block down from where I was searching. And, uh, I had just been rotated out to give my dog a break because we've been searching for two hours and, you know, it was early May, it was getting hot, it was humid. And uh, one of my good friends got on the air and says, hey, I got a guy walking out to my car with his hands up. Um, and the guy was taken into custody peacefully. And um, they, those guys, him and I would think it was two cousins, uh, were convicted of murdering Jerry and uh, they're still in prison now. Um, some of the other stuff that I've had happen, I've had some, uh, some interactions with some very good moments and where I've seen kids reunited with parents after being, you know, um, we had one deal where a kid was left in a car while it was running. Um, and it was, the car was stolen and the kid was gone for a while and, I was able to be one of the officers that was there when they located the stolen car and the kid was still okay inside of it. And we got to reunite him with his parents and you know, it's, it's not all been tragedy. It's, uh, been, you know, a good mix of, um, some good things that have happened. Um, so kind of to go from that, um, I've been involved in searches for other, um, we had a neighboring city lose an officer one morning, um, when he went to stop a guy that was involved in an auto theft and got called in from home on that one too, to help search. Um, and those were the hard ones. Those were, um, the ones that stick with me and I'm kind of moving on from that. Uh, my career kind of kind of leveled out and went back to kind of normal. Um, I worked patrol again. I, um, I worked the same. I was pretty blessed to work um, some of the neighborhoods I grew up in um, for 20 years on midnights and uh, developed some great relationships with business owners, um, citizens. Um, and it's funny because now... When I go to a call and hear a name, I'll be like, wait, is that, um, is your dad this person? And now it's, you know, the kids of the people I used to deal with. And it's, it's a sign I'm getting older. 
<laughs> it's a sign that, you know, uh, uh, time's still moving on. and um, Got a lot of gray in that beard now. Yeah, yeah. More than when I yeah, first that's, met Yeah, that's a combination of my girls and uh, work and stuff like that. But uh, John, you've been through hell and back. I, yeah. I, I mean, we've talked about this before. We mm-hmm. we know that uh, this career has been great to you, but also you've struggled through a lot of things. Yeah. That's yeah. the reality. So, because um, there's redemption on the other side coming, right? Like, that's where you're at now. Yes. Yes. Uh, but I, I wanted to talk, like, how's your personal life through all of these things? So, um, my personal life struggled um, after Jerry died. Um, and looking back on it now, it is, I didn't know what PTSD was at the time. I didn't know what trauma was at the time. I came from a culture when I got on of, hey, you're going to see some bad stuff. You suck it up. Suck it up and move on. You know, what other job do you have in this country where you can go from something um, so tragic as a fatal car accident to um, dealing with that and then having to go 20 minutes later, 15 minutes later to a DOA of a 40-year-old mother with three and you have to deal with that in a shift and um it's we live in a bigger city and that's how some of our guys operate is where they're called to call to call and we don't have the time to process that we don't and especially back then it wasn't the norm to process that it was um hey you have Deal with the call, go to the next one. So what'd you do to cope? Uh, that's where things started to fall apart for me. I started drinking a lot. Um, I would, we had just moved into a new house about a half hour out of the city. And I would, I'd set up my garage, you know, like most suburban houses. I got a TV in the garage, got a sofa in the garage. You got your beer fridge in the garage. You got, you know, you got your man cave. Um, I would retreat into that a lot and drink and watch hockey or, you know, go out there and putz with stuff. And um, looking back on it now, um, it took a toll on my marriage. Not so much. um, The drinking was a byproduct of something I had no idea what was going on. And I don't think that a lot of cops that have a drinking problem realize that it's a byproduct of the trauma, the unresolved trauma and exposure to trauma that hasn't been dealt with. So I didn't know what I was going through. I didn't know why I wasn't sleeping. I didn't know why I would wake up in the middle of the night screaming for somebody to show me their hands. Um, And this was all stuff I was experiencing. It took a pretty big toll on my marriage and my marriage ended in 2013. Went through a divorce with my ex-wife, which wasn't the prettiest. Um, but I, uh, a couple years ago, came to the realization that, you know, I can't harbor any negative feelings anymore because I was probably, if anything, more to contribute to the following a part of that marriage than anything. And to hold resentment for her like the old adage is like me drinking poison and expecting something to happen to her. I mean, it wasn't healthy. And I sat her and her new husband down, um, who was a good friend of mine. And I said, Hey, I forgive you guys. I, you know, I, I was responsible for this too. And I just want to, I, not, be friends, but I want to not harbor any ill will toward each other anymore. And, um, I want to do things for the betterment of the girls, my girls, my two daughters. And, uh, we get along 
great now. We sit together at hockey games. We, um, you know, if we have a question, if they have something, you know, they need a question answered as far as what I have a knowledge base on, they call me or if I need something done that they can help me with, I call them and it's a, it's a good relationship now that I never saw, you know, in the, in the point of that divorce, I never saw this happening. So, um, it's, it's, after that, it's the personal work you did, you know, like that's, that's part yeah, of it. It's, yeah. It's, and it is. And I needed that for the piece of my peace of mind. I needed to bury that and move on from that for my peace of mind. Um, from there, um, going back into a little bit of work to kind of follow a timeline in 2016, I was involved in a critical incident and a shooting, um, that, um, was kind of a big deal and, um, not to get any, any details on it, but, um, it affected me and I didn't know it right away again that it was affecting me. Um, shortly after that, I met a gal and started dating her and, um, we ended up buying a house together and, um, we got engaged and, um, the therapist that I saw later on was like, you were happy. So none of these feelings of, you know, the trauma didn't surface. It was buried by all this happiness you were going through and everything. So it didn't have a chance to start bubbling to the surface. And so after about a year of living together, I started isolating, started um, having some outbursts of, you know, not like violence, but just I would pop off fast. Like anger, short trigger. Anger, shortness, yeah. you know, grumpiness. I wasn't sleeping again, and I had started drinking again. Um, as a result of that, um, the relationship didn't survive. Um, and that was another very traumatic piece for me, you know, to know that I had failed twice in a relationship. And... Um, still didn't really understand what PTSD was at this point. Didn't understand what trauma was. Um, I had started drinking pretty heavy. Again, I moved into a small one bedroom apartment and, uh, I would drink to fall asleep at night. Um, I would drink to fall asleep. So I didn't have nightmares about the relationship, about work, about, you know, anything. And it worked for a while. It worked for a couple months. And then the dreams started finding a way around the alcohol. And um, I had to drink more to get to sleep. And pretty soon I'm up until two, three in the morning drinking on a work night. And, you know, it, I started, you know, affecting my performance at work. And um, fast forward a little bit to 2019 and the death of George Floyd and the civil unrest, um, Minnesota, St. Paul, Minneapolis was epicenter. It was epicenter for what was, um, going on in the, the country at that time. Um, I remember being at work the night George Floyd died and watching the video because the video came out right away. Somebody had live streamed it. And it came out right away. And I remember me and the guys that I worked on the day tour with sitting around going, this isn't good. This is not good. And I remember they let us go home that night. And by um, midnight that night, we were called back into work. I mean, Minneapolis was... Experiencing fire. civil unrest like they'd never experienced before. They had lit the third precinct on fire and burned the third precinct. Um, and that was what was going on for the next couple of days. Um, I was working during that civil unrest and I was approached by an individual. While I was working, I was standing in a line, um, you know, to we were actually providing security for a protest. 
And what this individual came up to me, a male, and he started talking about some personal issues that he knew I had, that I had been involved in, and um, was basically taunting me. And I there was nothing I could do but stand at attention and take it because, you know, I had no reason to interact with him. I had cameras on me. I, not that I would have done anything, but, um, you know, once that situation was over, I mean, you have that dump of emotion after that. And I was all spun up. I was angry. I was sad. I was, I felt every emotion you could feel in the span of a half hour. And I remember going home that night and I remember stopping at the liquor store and grabbing a 12 pack and a bottle of Jameson. And I was, I didn't care. I was going to get drunk to the point where, and at that time I had had some suicidal ideations and, you know, I was going to see how drunk I could get myself and see if those thoughts came back. And, um, I had, not gotten to that point. I drank and drank and drank and I ended up falling asleep and got up next the next morning for work. And, um, ah, this is where everything kind of came to a head for me. Uh, 24, well, at the time, 22 years of trauma, you know, personal trauma, um, job related trauma, and I woke, went into work that morning, and a um, good friend of mine, good sergeant, uh, kind of call him my guardian angel, uh, he uh, pulled me aside and he goes, you are shouldn't be here today. He goes, you are assigned to me for the day, and we'll deal with what's going on with you later on. And so I was assigned to him for the day and kind of an admitted in an administrative role and he pulled me aside after and he sat me down and he goes, I know you've gotten the shit kicked out of you the last couple of years. Um, I know you have not had it easy. He goes, but this reckless behavior you have, um, going on has to stop. And he was in one of my Academy mates and he was a parking enforcement officer with me. So we've known each other for 30 years. And he goes, you're one of my brothers and uh, I am going to be damned if I let you destroy yourself. He goes, you need help. He goes, I'm not forcing you, but you need help. And right then and there, I surrendered to it. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I do. Um, called our EAP director, um, talked to him for a little while and hung up the phone with him and I got an anonymous phone call from a Minneapolis cop. Um, I can't remember his name to the day. Um, we sat on the phone for about two hours and we talked about everything that was going on with me. He shared his story with me and at the end of the conversation, he goes, hey, I have a place I want you to check out in Utah, uh, Chateau Recovery. And I went and looked at it, um, kind of surrendered myself to, hey, I need help. Wasn't the most opportune time to be leaving on FMLA or um, trying to go get help, but I needed it because I didn't know. I honestly, to be honest with you, I didn't know how much more I could take. Yeah. Um, and within 48 hours, I was on the phone with you. Um and within three days of that, I had my truck loaded up and I was driving out to Utah. Well, arrived at the house on a Sunday. Um, they were kind of involved in all their stuff. And I was, I remember walking in the door, looking around and nobody was there. And I'm like, hey, this is your opportunity to leave. You just leave and. Nobody will know you, you know, you, you were even here that you had arrived and go home and try and fix the bridges you burned and beg for forgiveness. And, um, my roommate at the time, Jordan, 
saw me walking around and came out and he's like, Hey, I'm your roommate. And you know, this and that. And that was my stay at, uh, Chateau. I stayed 60 days, um, surrendered myself to the program, the teachings. And, uh, I have a little over two and a half years sober now and some other great opportunities as a result of having, um, Chateau introduced into my life have resulted. So I want to talk. I remember the day you came because I was playing golf that day up there. <laughs> of course you were. Yeah. I could probably and, uh, tell you who you were playing golf with. <laughs> yeah. And we, Chateau's on like the 14th hole of that course. So I pulled off knowing that you'd arrived and went and checked up on you in your room. Do you remember that? I kind of do. Yeah. Um, it's like 2.30 on a... Yep. On a Sunday. I remember it very, very clearly because uh, you've always been one of my favorites. Thank you. Um, kind of because you're a piece of shit. But, <laughs> uh, no, like what, what it really is, it's like I want you to kind of like paint a picture of what you had to get real with in order for you to heal. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Did you, yeah. did you have to go someplace that you never thought you'd have to go in order, in order to get where you are today? Um, yes and no. Um, yes. in the fact that I needed a reset, um, 22 years of trauma going call to call to call 22 years of patrol, um, being on the front lines and seeing the things I did 20, I was what? 40-something at the time, um, 40 years of trauma. I grew up in a, a house that had some chemical dependency in it. My mom was chemically dependent. I think my dad was a closet chemical dependent. Um, I think he um, he would bury himself in his work, though, and we wouldn't see him. He wouldn't show up at our sporting events. He wouldn't show up at family functions. He would bury himself in his work and... Um, so, yes, I think I needed a reset. I needed to go somewhere and take a time out and um, work on me. Just be somewhere that I had, didn't have to worry about, you know, I love my girls, but I didn't have to worry about them. They had a mom and a stepdad that were, and I sat down with them before I left for treatment and said, hey, I need you to take the girls for you know, 30, 60 days, I need to go and fix myself or I'm not going to be a good dad. Um, I had those luxuries. Um, I didn't have to worry about interacting with family or anything like that. I was able to just concentrate on myself, to concentrate on who I was, what was broken inside, and learn how to rebuild it. And I think one of the biggest things that stuck with me, um, I remember the first couple days being lost, just being like, they are speaking a different language here. I got this guy that's probably should be teaching at Harvard, Ben Pearson, um, talking about mindfulness. I don't know what the hell mindfulness is. I don't know what he's talking about. And then about a week, week and a half, and it all clicked for me and... Um, Ben's teachings, I carry them. I, uh, mindfulness is a big thing for me. And I, he, Ben, um, out of, you know, Jackie was one of my therapists out there and, um, but Ben, Ben and I clicked and Ben would order me books. He would, you know, he ordered me, um, there's a book about Adam Brown was a Navy SEAL that had a chemical dependency yeah. problem and yeah. had some roadblocks in life. Um, um, I can't remember the name. Of I know that. exactly what, and I can't either, um, but I know which But Ben ordered about. me that book and I devoured it. I devoured both of Marcus Luttrell's books while I was out there. And, um, and it, Ben and I would get into discussions about these books and, you know, the mindset of these warriors and, how they didn't let anything keep them down. And, and he would bring it into how 
we as first responders or even non-first responders fight demons in our lives and how mindset, if you have the right mindset, you can overcome anything. And um, I devoured those books. I devoured those three books. And Ben, I remember we were sitting eating lunch one day and he goes, I got your next one. And he goes, you're going to love this dude. And it was David Goggins. Goggins. And Goggins, if you don't know who Goggins is, YouTube him. Um, Very intense guy. His story is, um, I don't want to say a miracle, but it's empowering to the point where he overcame some adversity in his life. And he did it all with not giving up and telling his mind, no, we don't stop here. We have more room to go. We have more room to grow. We have more to give to this life. And so I devoured those four books, and I um, I use them in my teachings today to other people in recovery. Um, and uh, you and I this week, just yesterday, had an opportunity to listen to an individual talk, Jason... I can't remember how to Sheckler. Sheckler, um, the Arizona cop who was trapped in his squad car and basically burned alive and um, should have died. Um, but he, you know, and uh, little did I know that, I mean, he had a fire engine at the same light he was at when his squad car yeah. was hit and burst into flames. Um, just things worked in such a, I don't want to say beautiful harmony for such a tragedy, but um, if you want to call it a beautiful harmony, I think it was. Yeah, eight minutes. I mean, he had... Eight minutes, remember, from the accident into one of the best units in the country. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, yeah, what did he say? It was eight minutes Mm -hmm. from when his car erupted into flames to when he was on the emergency room table. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And God bless those firefighters that were there that night, his partners that were there, and just listening to him speak yesterday and seeing the physical transformation that from the pictures of when he was younger to what he looks like now and hearing him say that he would not change a thing in his life and that what happened to him was a blessing. And, and I was so into that speech that I took some, uh, um, this is one of his quotes. It says, sometimes the most beautiful inspirational changes will disguise themselves as utter devastation. Be patient. Things change. And, I look at my own life. I Granted, I have not gone through anything at that degree, but I've seen some stuff, experienced some stuff. And today, what gets me through is that mindset, um, the support network I have through Chateau, through um, some of the alumni stuff that is being done with Chateau. And, I mean, it, I'm blessed. You know, and I have a closer relationship with my kids now. I have great support at home. My my girlfriend is very supportive. She understands it. She puts up with you. She's got to be an amazing lady. <laughs> yeah. Now, so here's here's something I actually really wanted to discuss with you, and I and I felt like it was a, a very interesting experience for me. So we went and visited you last year. Went went into your department. You know, you gave us a tour. Yep. Everything like that. Uh, I thought it was super interesting that you took us by everyone that was there and you're like, oh, hey, this is Austin from that, from Chateau. You know, that place I went out to last year to get my head right. Yep. That's how you introduced us to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the first time that I had seen somebody be so open about where they had gone and, you know, what they had done. Because a lot of people, the reality is, you know, if if their department is involved, it's somewhat mandated usually. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, if not, then no one really knows about it. And, yep. and they don't spread the word when they got back. Uh, so I want to know, like, what, how did that happen? Like, I how- think to answer that question, we need to go back. Um, we need to go back into the early 80s and 90s of policing where, like I mentioned before in my my little spiel here, that if you were hurting, you didn't say anything to anybody. If you were emotionally hurting, you were having some kind of trouble um, with alcohol, with sleeping, with anything like that, you kept it to yourself. A couple reasons. Um, it was a sign of weakness back then. It was a sign of, oh, hey, we don't want to go through a door with that guy. He screwed up. We don't want him on our calls. He screwed up. And it was, you know, almost a fearful admittance if you did because you were like, okay, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to be demoted? Am I going to, how am I going to provide for my family, my kids? How am I going to pay my mortgage? Um, and we've come such a long way in the first responder field and in law enforcement as far as mental health and getting help. Um, now, um, I listened to your podcast with Indy PD. I mean, what a benchmark they're setting. Um, I mean, to the things they have in place for their officers, they are really, um, there's an old motto, I am my brother's keeper. They truly are being their brother's keeper and putting the officer first and everything. Um, we've come a long way in St. Paul. Um, we are, every year we have to take a PT test, um, you know, to make sure we're fit for duty and shape and everything. And along with that PT test, we have to go see um, a mental health professional. Just talk about what's going on, what we've experienced that year and everything. And it's a chance for guys to go, okay, this is mandated, but I'm not going to be punished for it. Um, It's a chance for me to maybe raise my hand and go, yeah, hey, I'm not doing so well. Um, I need some help. And it doesn't have to look like going to a facility like Chateau. It can be you know, hey, my marriage is in trouble. And um, do you guys offer some counseling for me and my wife? And they do. And it's a stepping stone that is used to maybe get those people that aren't so self-empowered to get the help themselves, to get them to sit down with a clinician or something like that and go, okay, yeah, I do have some stuff going on. And and maybe to get offered some services. And it's it's not forced upon us to go get that help. It is required that we do go sit down with the clinician once a year, which I think is a great idea. I mean, it, it, it affords us that opportunity to get that help if we need it. Um, to say that um, we are doing an awesome job in law enforcement as far as taking care of our people we can always do a better job we can always improve and um that's kind of what we're trying to do is we're trying to make it um okay to raise your hand and go hey i'm i'm tired i'm tired i've been doing this for 15 years i'm tired i need to take a breather I need to um, reset myself. I need to get some stuff off my chest. And it's not like it was in the early 80s, 90s, where it was seen as a form of weakness. And um, there's still some people that may see it as a form of weakness, but in a majority now, it's seen as a sign of strength. If you're able to raise your hand and go, hey, I'm, I'm struggling, I, help me. Help me so I don't totally implode my life and ruin my career. Um, so I think it, we, we've come a long way. And that that was your goal by doing that was to let people know that. Yeah. Because you're yeah. a big, and, you're and a big, I'm not, it, it, you know me. I am, yeah. I'm me. 
Yeah, you I, are. I, I, I don't hide shit. Yeah, but I think at like a physical standpoint, right? Like you're a big dude, yep. tattooed up. You look pretty fucking tough. If I'm, you know what I'm saying, just just I know you're a big softy. Here's my philosophy on it, Austin. I'm John. I'm John Corcoran. I'm Cork. You love me or you don't like me. It does no skin off my back. Um, I'm I'm not, I'm not gonna hold a grudge against you if you don't like me. You know that that's okay. Um, and so as far as the point you brought up of when we were walking through the halls, I don't hide the fact that I went and got help. Um, I almost see it as an opportunity to be a leader as far as, you know, as some of the younger guys, I'm 48, 48 today. Um, (laughs) uh, so I see it as an opportunity to be a leader to the younger guys to say, hey, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay if the veteran guys are doing it. Um, it's okay. It's okay to say, I'm not okay. Um, and that's why I'm open with it. I'm open with anybody that wants to talk about it. I don't hide the fact that I went to treatment, not once but twice. Um, I don't. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about that. Yeah, you went to a, it's a, not... a non-first responder place first, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, and it was a total shit show. Yeah. Um, we won't mention any names, but um, it, uh, I see it as an opportunity to be an example, to be um, of service to my fellow first responders, to answer any questions, to um, relate some experience of what it's like to be vulnerable, to... Um, and I think that's the biggest way we heal is by being vulnerable to be able to say, you know, Hey, I'm hurting. I, I, I got this, this hole in my heart that I don't know how to fill and, uh, I need some help from you to fill it. And so to go back to your point, I don't, I don't hide it. Um, I celebrate it. I, uh, I, you know, I have been on excursions with guys i mean we we had our guys um golf in the golf tournament a couple weeks ago and one of them slipped up and offered me a beer and i'm like no i'm good i'm good and he's like oh jesus christ i forgot and i'm like dude it's not that big of a deal yeah i go i just don't drink anymore i said i can have fun i can hang out with you guys and you guys got a safe way to get home if you guys want to get out of control you know, and it's, I wouldn't say a badge of honor for me because I don't flaunt it, you know, but if somebody pulls me aside and says, hey, I'm struggling with this and I heard you have two, yeah, let's go get a cup of coffee. Let's sit down and yeah. let's dig into it and see what's going on. And that has happened more often than not. Well, like we once again won't mention names, but I think there's a few people in that department that have gotten help because yes. of you yes yeah i can think of quite a few off the top of my head yep. um which is a beautiful thing mm-hmm. right like that's i think that's and i i gotta tip our hat to our administration and um our chief uh, they support us getting help they they have invested so much time and so much effort and um I'll even take it as far as so much love into us because, you know, law enforcement, police departments, they are a family. I mean, I get to go to work with 18 of my closest brothers and friends every day and yuck it up during roll call and give each other shit. And um, so it is a loving environment. And our administration supports and knows that, hey, this is what I do this for my family member. Would yeah, I well, would I get my family member the help that they need? Yeah, and they look at it. I think too, like from because we know that administration does run off dollar bills, right? Like yep. they've got you as a twenty year officer that comes back in a healthier mindset, you know. Yep. And, and I think have, you've done a pretty good job once you come back, right? I think so. And 
that's a one hundred fifty thousand they get to save on training someone to yes. replace you, and they get you for another nine years after treatment, right? Yep. Like that's yep. that's the reality. And and not even the investment they put into me. Um. It almost rejuvenated me, as far as my love of the job again. Yeah. When I left for Chateau, I was. Oh, I remember. I hated the job. I hated what it had done to me. I had hated what I had become. And what I learned out of Chateau wasn't so much what the job wasn't responsible for it. It was how I chose to handle what the job exposed me to. And I wasn't handling it in a healthy manner. I was drinking. I was, you know, not sleeping. I was, you know, I was unhealthy. And um, getting back from Chateau, I couldn't wait to get back to work. I couldn't wait to get back around the guys. Yeah. I couldn't wait to cr- climb in the par- car with my partner. And I, uh, that right there is a special relationship for me. I mean, a lot of St. Paul's sons become... Um, one of St. Paul's finest. And I am fortunate enough to ride around in the car 10 hours a day with one of my best friends that I've known since I was six years old. And that in itself was motivation for me to get better. And, you know, to be able to, to ride that, that experience out with him and, you know, be able to be, a productive part of our department together. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Well, John, you killed it. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a beautiful story. Um, you know, I didn't know everything. I, I knew some, but not everything. And mm-hmm. you've been through a shit done and you've came out the other side because you've done the work. Yeah, and, and then, know, you spread, just, then you spread the word. You know, I have a big tagline with um, I run a Zoom meeting on Wednesday night for first responders, and we have a group meet chat that we do. Um, and my tagline, I get on there every morning. I try to give some motivation to those guys. And I, you know, hey, this is your day. Go take it. Make it um, what you want out of it. Be good to other people. And my tagline to them, and they'll, they probably could recite it for you, is I always finish it with, hey, I love you guys. Um, always put yourself in your recovery first. And if anybody listening to this needs any kind of help, I mean, it's ask for it. It's a scary moment when you're asking for it, but... I promise you on the other side, it is a very, very rewarding journey that you will take to heal and to process some of those things that are troubling you. And that's uh, that's where we're going to end. It's, All right. a per- it's a perfect ending. All right. John, I, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. No, I, it's an honor to sit here and talk with you and yeah. share friendship with you. And Absolutely. So. You're a good man. Thank you, John. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by... Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. 
In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.